Welcome to Let's Talk, a podcast series by the Electrochemical Safety Research Institute. My name is Daniel, and I will be your host for this episode. In the Let's Talk series, we host discussions with leading experts, scientists, and engineers from around the world in energy storage systems, safety science, and standards, and learn about their experiences and visions. Today, our discussion will be centered on energy storage systems for aerospace applications. The International Space Station is the largest modular space station currently in low Earth orbit. The station serves as a microgravity and space environment research laboratory in which scientific research is conducted in astrobiology, astronomy, meteorology, physics, and other fields. A power source is necessary to carry out experiments and maintain the vital services of the astronauts. To understand how the ISS obtains the required power to continue operating, today we have the presence of Penny Dalton. Penny Dalton was the NASA ISS Electric Power System Battery, Battery Subsystem Manager, and the ISS Integration Project Manager at NASA Glenn Research Center. Penny, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Daniel, for the invitation. I'm honored to be here. I was reading your resume, and I'm impressed by the time you've had worked for NASA and the ISS. How was your interest in NASA and aerospace application board? Well, I grew up during the time of the space launches and the first landing on the moon. And I watched those. I remember being in school and having a big assembly where we would watch those kind of things and watch movies about rockets. So that really spurred my interest in it. Also, I grew up in Southern California and there are, are a lot of the aerospace companies are there. So probably a lot of the people that I grew up with had parents that were also working in the aerospace industry. So oh. I always had an eye on it. At some time, did you imagine you'll be working on this project, especially in batteries? At that time, I hate to say it, but I didn't have any female role models that were working um, for NASA and things like that. So it never really even occurred to me that I could go to work for NASA and, and work on such an important project. So things have changed in the last 50 years. <laughs> yes, <laughs> fortunately. How did your interest in batteries start? Uh, well, when I was in college, I was looking for a, a summer internship kind of job. And I don't remember how I got the job, but I was hired by the Aerospace Corporation and I was put in their battery lab. And I, I met some very influential people at that time and started learning about batteries then. And that was my between my junior and senior year of college. And then after I graduated from college, I contacted one of the aerospace companies there. I, I heard they were looking for some people in the battery field. and. Um, from there on, it's it's history. Started with them and have been in batteries pretty much ever since I got out of college. That's really nice. Right now, there is a lot of information about batteries and energy storage systems for terrestrial applications. But how about designing batteries for aerospace applications? What conditions must be considered when designing a battery operating in space? Uh, well, the, the, you have to have a, a much higher reliability and, and lifetime for anything that's going to be going into space because it's a lot harder to swap out a battery. And on the earth, you can go to the hardware store and buy yourself a new AAA battery and stick it in your remote. But we, we have a little more difficulty in space. So reliability and, and maintenance of the batteries is, is very important. Another big driver is uh, the weight of a battery and the volume. 
because everything has to be launched into space at some point. And every gram, kilogram that goes up, that's just more fuel that the rocket has to, to have. So the, the vehicles are always pushing back on the systems and saying, can't you make it lighter weight? Can't you give me more power? In the case of the space station, the batteries that I worked on, which are the, the main batteries for the entire electric power system, they are outside of the space station. So they're exposed to the vacuum and the heat and the cold of, of space. So you have to design for those temperatures and, and those the, the vacuum. You also have to look at vibration. When you launch something into space, that launch vehicle has very high launch vibrations, which can shake a battery to pieces if it's not designed properly. So we look at that as well. And then we also have to look at the safety of the battery, depending on if it's a manned mission or an unmanned mission. Space station is manned, even though the batteries are outside, you might have an astronaut outside at some point near a battery. So you, you have to build the safety in so that you maintain the safety of your astronauts as well as your, your vehicle. So those are some really big things that we have to work towards. Oh, that's very interesting. I was also reading that one of the first sources of power for the ISS was the nickel hydrogen battery. What were the main factors for choosing this type of battery? And if you remember some specifications. When Space Station was first in the design phase, before I was actually working on it, nickel cadmium batteries had been the battery of choice for, for satellites and spacecraft. They've been around a long time and suddenly this new technology, nickel hydrogen came along. And as the nickel cadmium became more obsolete because the, the nickel hydrogen had higher energy densities and specific energies, and they had the lifetime necessary. So by the time I got on the space station, the decision had already been made to go to the nickel hydrogen. However, the ISS was going to be the first and largest nickel hydrogen battery ever flown. So there was a lot of scrutiny, like, are we sure we want to fly this quasi unknown technology, you know, rather than the old workhorse, the standard nickel cadmium. So those were things that we needed to, to work on. The actual nickel hydrogen batteries were 81 amp hours, which were 38 cells in series. So each battery was, um, it consisted of two separate orbital replacement units, two different boxes of, of these cells connected in series. So you had 76 cells in series and three of these batteries were in parallel to be on the bus for the space station. Each of the individual ORUs was about 4.4 kilowatt hours. They were spec to run at 35% depth of discharge and last for about six and a half years in the LEO life cycles. Can you tell us the possible faults to which nickel hydrogen battery were susceptible once installed? The first concern that came up was their pressurized vessels, right? Because it, it generates hydrogen on charge. So we definitely had to design for the pressure. And not only for the pressure, we over-designed, making them heavier because the pressure vessels had to be thicker. Um, we did a lot of fracture analysis on the pressure vessels to make sure that, that they would be able to withstand six and a half years of life cycle testing, of, of, of on-orbit cycling. Um, we did special testing of some pressurized cells uh, and hit them with like a high-velocity ballistics pellet to see are they going to explode on you? Is there going to be shrapnel that goes flying everywhere? 
fortunately not it didn't it would just penetrated the the pressure vessel and you know you got a little piece so um, those are things that we had to look at um, because of the limited maintenance we, we had to design for something that was going to last for the six and a half years and and be reliable um, we were concerned about temperature the ISS photovoltaic thermal control system maintained the batteries of the temperatures that were optimum to generate the longest life possible. So the nickel hydrogen batteries were operated at five plus or minus five degrees C. If they could be operated at higher temperatures, but you would be reducing your cycle life. And then if you got hot enough, you potentially are gonna increase the pressure too much. And on the other side, if they got too cold, we were concerned about them freezing and creating cracks in the, the polymer seals of the pressure vessel, which would then cause the contents to leak and you would no longer have a working battery. So those were things that we looked into. Um, so yeah, over so overcharge was a concern. If you overcharge, they would get too hot and could possibly overpressurize, reduce cycle life, cause leaks, that kind of thing. I already mentioned overpressure. And one thing that the nickel hydrogen batteries required was as they aged while they were or on orbit, the individual cells would get out of balance. They, you know, you would charge some of them before the others. So we had to do a reconditioning twice during their cycle, their, their entire time up on orbit, just to charge them up, discharge them all the way down, reset the pressure parameters so that we, we got the cells all balanced again. Mm -hmm. So those were the kind of things that we had to work on for the nickel hydrogen. Yeah, that's interesting. Then in 2010, NASA started looking for a replacement of the nickel hydrogen orbital replacement unit installed in 2006. How was this process? And did you look at different battery chemistries? The process as a battery person actually started before 2010. We had attempted to get the program to fund some kind of research in it and and they weren't interested so in about 2010 we were looking at the future and as our batteries were aging what how many spares did we have how often could we replace them and nickel hydrogen was becoming obsolete at the point we were going to be needing more batteries so we went to the um, space station program and said well if we want to continue with nickel hydrogen, we're going to have to fund the nickel hydrogen battery manufacturer to keep their line going and up and, and capable. And even though we're not buying anything because nobody else was going to be buying anything. Or we could switch over to lithium ion, which was the only chemistry that we had considered because a lithium ion, we would need half as many replacements because of the higher specific energy. So the program liked that story. And they said, forget nickel hydrogen, we're gonna go with lithium ion. So once we made the decision and the program turned us on, we started a risk mitigation project for the lithium ion. And we looked at five or six different manufacturers, different cell sizes. We did some DPAs, some capacity testing, some um, cycle testing, just to see how they responded, you know. And um, we, we actually went out to the manufacturers to, to audit their, their processes to see if they would have the, 
enough control of their processes that we would feel comfortable buying um, orders from them. Then the space station contractor that was going to be building the batteries did an independent review of all the data that we had gathered from that risk mitigation and any other information that was publicly available. And they made a recommendation that we pursue two of these various manufacturers. And at that point, the space station actually began to fund the build of the batteries. And we went with the two different manufacturers through the qualification phase. And once we'd done the qualification, then we had a down select to decide which of the two manufacturers we are going to pursue. So it was a pretty, and in the meantime, there were trade studies about thermal, about um, weight, about, you know, all sorts of different things were, were considered. But um, yeah, so the final down select, we, we went with one manufacturer. After you selected the chemistry, it started the replacement process. Uh, what was the main challenge during this replacement process? And if you had to do some changes in the electrical connections, were the batteries similar? Okay, so remembering that this is an existing uh, vehicle that's in space, uh -huh. we had existing batteries in space. So we had existing slots that we had to replace these batteries. So the footprint of the new lithium ion battery had to fit in exactly the same footprint as the nickel hydrogen. We take out a nickel hydrogen and a lithium ion went in there because there are two nickel hydrogen in series in the in the old version, and we only needed one lithium ion to replace those two. We had to develop basically a cover for where the other uh, nickel hydrogen ORU was, and it also completed the the electrical circuit. It, you know, it protected the the um, thermal control system that was running underneath the the, the battery from getting hit by MMOD or micrometeoroid or orbital debris, and it completed the electrical circuit. So two boxes needed to be developed for the new lithium ion. The old nickel hydrogen had kind of like the smarts of the battery was called a battery signal charge conditioning module. And it multiplexed all the data from the nickel hydrogens. And there were um, the individual cell voltages there were four pressure voltages and nine temperature sensors that were in there. That, and all that data was multiplexed out into a different box, battery charge discharge unit. So with the lithium ion, we're looking at a different number of cells. We're, look, we're not looking at pressure anymore. So a new battery smarts was developed called the battery interface unit. And that battery interface unit checked all of the, there was, 30 cells in series inside the lithium ion battery. So checked all of those 30 individual voltages of each cell. It checked the temperature of each cell and it checked the temperature of the base plate in a couple different places. So then that information was multiplexed out. Because there was a difference between the type and the number of sensors that were coming out in that data stream, there had to be changes made to the flight operations software to recognize that, oh, this is not a pressure reading anymore. This is now a voltage reading or something. So, so the software had to be updated. In addition, 
the nickel hydrogen batteries operated, like I said, between five to plus or minus five degrees C. The um, lithium ion batteries operated at 30 plus or minus seven degrees C. So it was a much warmer system. So we had to design the battery box. The original um, nickel hydrogen, its base plate has fins that interface with fins in on the IEB integrated equipment assembly of the space station. So when we designed the, nickel, the lithium ion, we shortened the fins. They didn't need as much cooling as mm -hmm. the nickel hydrogen did. And um, we also developed some additional thermal control system algorithms to operate the system a little differently so it kept the batteries warmer rather than as cold as the nickel hydrogen. Yeah. How long are these lithium-ion batteries expected to last? So the lithium-ion batteries um, are expected to last 10 years, approximately 60,000 cycles at 18% depth of discharge. Um, an additional change is, is how they were actually, the, the charging algorithm is different between nickel hydrogen and lithium ion. The nickel hydrogen is based on a pressure and temperature mm -hmm. um, algorithm. Well, we don't have pressure with lithium ion, so we had a voltage algorithm. So uh, that was more software that, that was uploaded and, and to operate the batteries properly. So the, the lithium ion is, 30 lithium ion cells in series. They were 134 amp hour batteries, cells, I mean. The battery itself is about 15 kilowatt hours versus the nickel hydrogen, which was two four amp kilowatt hours in series. So eight versus 15, almost twice as much power available in the same one of the two boxes. Yeah. It was pretty exciting to everybody. And, and even with, with us giving the the operators twice the power, they were always asking for more. Well, why can't we use more? Why can't we pull out more? Well, because you might not have the solar array power capable to recharge them if you pulled out too much power. I mean, it's a one-time thing, but you can't do it all the time. And if you want them to last 10 years, treat them right keep them at that 18% depth of discharge rather than take them to 30% depth of discharge, you know? So. How was the charge process? You mentioned you had some solar panels, but for how long the solar panels are exposed to the sun or how much time it takes to charge the battery? Okay, the space station in the low earth orbit is approximately 55 minutes in the sun. So you're operating off of the solar arrays so that the solar arrays are providing all the power and they're recharging the batteries during that 55 minutes. And then you have about 35 minutes of darkness, which is when you are operating off of the batteries. Okay. So there's the, the space station orbits the earth about 16 times a, a day. Okay. And um, depending on what time of the year you are, that 55, 35 minute cycle changes and shifts. And, and there are some periods where it's almost 100% solar for the entire orbit. Mm -hmm. But generally, for, for Leo cycle and, and any kind of testing we do, we, we use the 55-35. The mm -hmm. Okay. I would like you to share some advice for students on how to have a successful career as you have in aerospace application. Well, first of all, um, work really hard in school and get good <laughs> grades. 
get an internship with with one of these companies to start with and and start your networking then start meeting people going to conferences if possible and and meeting the right people and um then once you get hired by uh, one of these companies nasa whatever then you work really hard to to get to where you want to be and to to be successful in your job was it difficult for you um it it was challenging i wouldn't necessarily say difficult you you uh -huh. know um there were there were like i said there were challenges um but you you, you work through them and um you know as as you have more experience and you get more responsibilities you uh -huh. you learn how to absorb them and and how to improve what's what you've been doing so um nasa is really good about providing additional training they i have a masters if i had wanted to i could have pursued a phd from that nasa would have would have paid for it but um, it wasn't necessary for what i was doing they provide training like i have my project management professional certificate that was through training with nasa so you know take take advantage of the opportunities that you would have out there for additional training additional schooling and talk to people that have been around a long time figure out what it is they've done and how they got there mm -hmm. i think that's a good way to conclude the, the episode thank you very much for talking with us and sharing your experience. Um, thank you very much also to the audience for joining us and please stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you, Daniel. Oh, thanks to you.